Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity we have to share in the good news of an abundant life. We thank you that you've given us health principles that we can not only live by, but we can share with others. And I pray that you will be with each of us as we spend this time together, that we can learn what you want us to learn, and that we can be willing to share it with our neighbors. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So this idea of farms to and you is based on Jesus and his message in John 10.10 10 about desiring for us all to have abundant life. So we also know that, you know, our church, we talk about the great controversy. And in this one verse, the great controversy is contained because Jesus wants us to have an abundant life. But the first half of the verse is talking about another force that wants to kill, steal, and destroy, right? Satan, that's his plan. And so we want to we counteract his work with trying to make sure that people can live life and live it abundantly. Welcome. So we're really excited to just kind of think about what is abundant life. What, what will you think about when you think about an abundant life? What comes to your mind when you think of abundant life? Plenty. Plenty. Joy. Healthy. What else? Well-being, maybe? Yeah, those things. Oh, good. Well, I'm somebody who likes to know definitions. At our house, we don't do much of anything without a dictionary. So I went to look it up in the dictionary. We heard Jesus' definition. I've come to have it, and have it more abundantly. The first definition was marked by great plenty or amply supplied. Isn't that beautiful? There's a verse that comes to my mind when I think of amply supplied. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19. Isn't that beautiful? How many of our needs does he say he'll supply? All of them. That's pretty abundant, isn't it? That's pretty abundant. So we're wanting to share with you um, God's vision for an abundant life. Amen. So in doing so, I want to just take us through this idea of, of running an experiment with God. We talked a little bit about that yesterday, and I actually personally ran my own Adventist experiment. Um, I, I mentioned I'm a fairly new Adventist, and I was born in an Adventist hospital in Denver, Colorado as a baby. Ended up becoming a vegetarian just on my own convictions when I was about eight, and then studied nutrition in college because everybody in my family thought I was going to shrivel up and die and become stunted and malnourished myself by being a vegetarian. That was in the very late 70s, early 80s. And so it, it developed in me a passion for nutrition. And I never really met an Adventist except for those ones that probably slapped me and made me cry when I was born. And so <laughs> I... Um, I actually learn about Adventism through the clinical research that was even present from like the 1980s showing that there was this population of people that, you know, a lot of them were vegetarians, so they were a great research subject study. And, and it was back when uh, Dean Ornish, if you're familiar with him, was already proving that you could reverse coronary heart disease with a plant-based diet. And I was at a good old meat and potatoes school, Virginia Tech, and they, you know, thought it was a bit odd that I was writing all my papers on, on vegetarianism. But nevertheless, the research was strong, and I did well in school, and I 
It was pre-internet, though. So I couldn't look up who are these Adventists, what do they believe? And in my mind, I, it was kind of in that blurry, like, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness crowd. <laughs> and so I just didn't go there to learn more. Um, and ended up, long story, but uh, about eight years ago, ended up going into a vegetarian cooking class at my church. And I want to give you all some hope if you do health ministries. Apparently, and it was unbeknownst to me till several years later, I was the only outsider that came that day. So one person, and it started a whole series of events in my life where I learned the truth, I learned these messages. A lot of them the Holy Spirit really had already revealed to me in some regard. I mean, I was very excited about the second coming, different things, and just walking on my own journey of faith. But when I learned about them, I was very intrigued, but I still had that like pushback resistance. And so it took uh, a period of time where I actually moved away from, I, I was keeping the Sabbath for a period of time, and then I moved away from the Sabbath. And I really believe that God disciplined me during that time and allowed me to go through my own very dark period of some depression and anxiety and insomnia, and um, really was struggling and really crying out to the Lord, like, what is going on? I was a homeschool mom, and it was just very, very difficult time. And so I just felt like God told me to run my own experiment. <laughs> And that was about four and a half years ago. And I said, you know what? I know what the Adventists teach on you know, temperance and all the different things. I said, I'm going to just go cold turkey, no coffee, no alcohol, no you know, whatever, like daily Bible study, and then start really just keeping the Sabbath again and being dedicated to that. And I can tell you in my own personal life, it was just such a miracle that happened to me. Um, I also was blessed by getting my kids into an Adventist school well before I actually came into the church. That's a whole other story. But the health message and the education system were huge in my life, bringing me in and really brought me from darkness to light and from a sense of death to life. And so with that experiment working so well, um, I just really wanted to pray about how could others be blessed and benefited by it. And so the first um, experiment that I want to just dive into quickly is this experiment of Daniel and his friends. I call it the first ever clinical trial that was recorded. <laughs> and it actually has all the elements of science when you think about it. The question um, that they were asking is, should we live the king's way or God's way? And the king's way was represented by refined foods, meat and wine, and who knows what else was going on in the palace, right? The observation was, um, oh, sorry, and then what was God's way? Daniel and his friends, they had a whole history of, you know, more than a thousand years at that point of God showing them the diet in the garden, you know, what would happen when there was obedience and disobedience, even Noah and, you know, the fact that, that he was defined what was clean and unclean for him. And just they, they had a history to draw upon. It wasn't just a random decision that they decided to go for their simple plant-based foods and water diet. They had a basis for that. So the hypothesis that they tested was that God's way would lead to abundant life. It was the same hypothesis that I was testing um, four years ago. I love what it says in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, that he purposed in his heart not to defile himself. And I think that the Bible talks so much about the mind and the heart and how those choices that we make, you know, our frontal lobe choices to purpose in our heart and, and to not defile ourselves. Those are so important. Um, the, the period of time for the experiment, 10 days, it's a pretty short clinical trial. To expect results like this 
after 10 days. I mean, we know there was a miracle involved, but they were also following basic wisdom. The idea of pulse and water, I like the King James Version in this case because it uses the word pulse. Are people familiar with what their pulses? Beans, right. So it, often there's like a lot of different churches now. They'll go on a Daniel diet, especially in January when everybody's put on a few pounds. And um, oftentimes I've seen people do it and they're just doing straight vegetables and water. Uh, I've even been a health teacher at a Christian school where people were doing that and these young boys were just eating vegetables. It actually concerned me. I, I, I want people eating the pulses and there's power in the pulse, I say. Um, so actually, there's a lot of good research that adding beans to your diet daily can add four years to your life. Just that one action of daily legume consumption. So anyway, the control group, um, sorry, the subjects, Hananiah, Michelle, Azariah, and Daniel were in the subjects of the study, and then the control group was everybody else. And they had to say no to a lot of tempting things, right? And, and that, I'm sure, could have been a challenge for them, but they had this very disciplined choice that was made, and they were ready to carry out that choice. And when I think about it, I'm sure the king's table looked better than this, but we are confronted daily with fair in front of us like never before in history has been possible. I joke, you know, when I was little and you'd go get gas, you got gas. You, that was all that was at the gas station. Now every gas station looks like this. Everywhere we go looks like this. You can't check out of anything without just being assaulted with just absolutely worthless food that's going to do damage to our bodies. So we have to make the same choice daily. But we have this evidence from the clinical trial recorded in the Bible to help us, empower us to make the choice. We also have the Holy Spirit to help us make the choice. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Of course, we know that the eunuch was quite shocked and happy that he was able to retain his head as a result of these results. In all matters of wisdom and understanding, he found them 10 times better. I like to really emphasize here we have the physical benefits that they received, but then they also received these spiritual benefits as well of, of wisdom and knowledge and understanding of God. And that's what our whole health message at the end of the day, it's really about nothing else but our ability to have a clear mind that can hear the Holy Spirit and act upon his will and help us to know God's will for our life. If it's just adding lives, it's just adding years, I mean, that's good, but it's not the point. The point is that we can hear God and we can be prepared to do what he asks us to do. So there's abundant life. Yesterday, we talked about how some um, people have found places, hotspots of abundant life. And I think we're all familiar with the Blue Zones. And uh, this is the original magazine that was, was talking about the Blue Zones. Back in um, 2005, it came out. And so we know that, you know, Seventh-day Adventists, like the research that was available in the 80s, really came out in a big way, showing that the lifestyle choices that we have been promoting now for over 100 years are really resulting in the benefits. There are different books on the topic. There's a lot of different interesting things. We don't line up with everything that they recommend, but there's a lot of things that we found, and we discussed this yesterday, some of the characteristics of those blue zones where they found um, the health and longevity contributing factors. And so we talked about those yesterday. Any that jumped out for you yesterday that was, were surprising? 
not surprising, but constant activity is right there in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, lazy boy is supposed to be the new smoking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Being sedentary is the new smoking, they say. So the constant activity, I like that in that it's not that all these cultures had a you know gym membership. It's that they were you know hiking up a hill to go you know milk their goats or go do their garden or the Japanese women are out collecting seaweed. So they're just moving as part of their life. So we came up yesterday, we talked about this idea of farm stew. And so today the theme is kind of farm stew and you. Yesterday we talked a lot about what was going on in Africa. We'll still keep our heart partially there because that's partly where I'm always right now. But um, today we're really talking also about how to apply it here. And then tomorrow we'll kind of head back to Africa again. But the idea is um, we want to be able to equip Christian brothers and sisters to be able to thrive. Now we serve anybody. And like I said yesterday, we go out to mosques, we go to Islamic girls schools, we, we've worked with you know, all different people of all different religions. And mostly Christian and Muslim is in the areas where we're working in Africa. But we do want to heed the wisdom of this verse. It says, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And, you know, we know that in these last days, because of lawlessness, the love of many grow cold. And so that losing heart, that losing our passion, our concern for others, that's a real temptation that we need to fight against. But it says, therefore, as we have opportunity let us do good to all, especially to those who are in the household of faith. And so I, I find it important that when we are investing, when we're hiring staff, when we're going out training, we want to equip the church members. And uh, someone came to our booth actually yesterday and was asking us, how are you different from ADRA? And we, we do a lot of similar things to ADRA, but I actually worked for the federal government for Health and Human Services myself. I know ADRA gets a lot of federal grants. And so and they, when they get that money, they need to be very careful that they don't look preferential towards Adventists. Whereas we can say, you know what, we're hiring Adventists, and we are going to be at the camp meetings. We are going to be used in your total member involvement efforts. We are going to you know, partner up communities where we trained with the local church members in that area so they can follow up and do discipleship. So that's something that makes us a bit distinctive because we do want to build up the household of faith. For example, there was a quarter million new members baptized in just Tanzania, uh, Rwanda, and Uganda in like a one-year period. So here they are. They're going to be leaving behind certain practices they may even be losing their jobs because of Sabbath worship and, and maybe the jobs weren't in line with our values. How are they going to thrive? How are we going to retain them in the body of Christ in a way that provides a healthful witness to their community unless we equip them with skills? So that's one of the things we focus on. So farming, our, each letter of our acronym, and I think, I'm not sure if we passed these out to everybody if you didn't get it. And then I will pass this around also if people are interested. So, thank you. Um, so farming, we have kind of a tagline for each thing. Farming is faithfulness to the principles revealed in God's word and observed in nature. So this is just an example of a farm you could have. You know, maybe you only have room for one or two uh, boxes in your yard, but, you know, why mow when you can sow? <laughs> so, so, yeah, I have had a garden, you know, in, in my yard for 
more than 15 years. When I lived in the city, it was actually one of the things that made me move out of the city was when my tomato plant was actually stolen out of the cage. And instead of just picking a tomato, they took the whole plant. And I said, oh my goodness. Um, you see some fun things here like companion planting with nasturtium that kind of helps move some of the bugs away. And um, these are actually edible flowers, different, just fun things. And you can make it such a great activity for kids. Um, and actually, I just talked to a woman who came to the door who said she's working, um, just growing food and just giving it away. That's part of her ministry. And I said, you're already doing farm stew and you, and you haven't even come to the session or know anything. So it's that idea that let's use farming, let's use gardening as a ministry. I was outside in my yard, and uh, oh my goodness, and uh, we were just the neighbor kids, you know, they're out just, they have nothing to do this summer. Their parents are both working and I'm like, hey, will you guys help me, you know? <laughs> and, you know, in some ways, I, you can even sometimes get other people's kids, and then that'll motivate your own kids if you have them, so. Uh, quick question. Yeah. Um, when you do the box gardens, do you leave the soil, you flip it over, and then you leave the soil underneath, you don't try to put a new soil base? Okay. Yeah, so I don't, these are not my picture, this is not my garden, but... I just do mounded gardens, actually, which is, those ones look prettier. They're also a lot more work. Um, what we teach, actually, is that you would have a bed that would be, um, let me just see if I have that slide in here still. Okay, so we would have beds that are 110 centimeters across, and what you would do is basically, um, you just basically shave off the top of the weeds and whatnot. You don't do a lot of deep, deep digging because there's a whole microorganism, a microflora in the soil that you don't want to destroy. And when you expose it to the sun, you can actually, you know, a lot of those things die or when it gets dried out. So if you just shave off the top and then take the soil from the what will be the rows and pile it up, and that's how you make the beds. And that's what we do in Africa. That's what I do in my own garden. And then you want to do mulching. I would actually recommend a lot more mulching than what you have here. But that makes it so you separate out the beds. And then this is like a planting plan where it's nice. If you have a very consistent width across, um, then you can have the planting is very particular in the spacing. And what's kind of cool, we talked about how the African women don't necessarily need to be told to get fresh air and sunshine, but their plants need fresh air and sunshine because the biggest risk to a plant, especially in a tropical area, is fungal disease. And if you plant them, say, for example, in a bed like this, you can do um, leafy greens like this in rows of three. Carrots or onions, you could do rows of five. And then tomatoes or beans, you do rows of two. So you want to separate them out so that when they're in their fully mature state, the leaves are not touching each other, and they can get fresh air and sunshine to each and every plant. And that really reduces the risk of disease. Um, we talk also about uh, crop rotation. And this is a very, very, very simplified version of crop rotation, but farms do, one of our goals is to make everything as simple as possible so that when we train trainers, they can go out. So you do lose a tiny bit of information in the simplification, but we believe it's worth it. So we put our crops into four categories, those where you eat the leaves, those where they are legumes, um, so that whole family of beans, uh, the fruits, so anything that has a flower and then you end up eating what comes out of the flower, and then those that are root crops. So there's four, four types, and what you want to do is like this is a season. So in Africa, they might have three seasons a year, but generally for us, we just have one, right? 
So you want to have your beds lined up and your seasons. And so you just want to know, you can just have a very simple notebook. What did I plant here last year, the year before, the year before? So if you can just dedicate one small notebook to keep track of what you had in the different beds. And that's another reason it's really nice to have some type of raised bed or fixed bed area so you can kind of number it in your mind. And, you know, the guy this morning was talking about the chairs being in order and how God loves a God. God is a God of order and Satan loves chaos. And I know in my brain, I have to force myself into order. Like my natural inclination is a bit chaotic. So um, the same thing with the garden. And you're doing this because like, for example, the legumes, that's the family that's fixing nitrogen from the air. And it's actually taking nitrogen out of the air, and it's, uh, there's a bacteria-fungal interaction. <laughs> You're nodding. I think you know. Um, yeah, so the, the nodules, they are basically like fertilizer pockets. So when you're done with your legumes, you don't want to pull out the whole root. You want to leave those roots in to decompose, and that's going to release nitrogen in the soil so that the next season, whatever you're planting after the legumes, the fruits, those are going to need the nitrogen that were left in the soil by the legumes. So it's, God is just so good. Um, just four principles, and this kind of stretched out a little bit weird, but we have like a planting guide that we can share with you too if you're interested. Um, four principles that we really are strict about planting on time. There's a lot of productivity lost if we don't plant at the right time. Um, no wastage, so all the dead plant matter goes into mulch or compost. So you don't burn anything, you don't throw anything away. Um, Everybody should have maybe in the back of their yard somewhere a, a mulch or a compost pile. And even the kitchen waste, the leaves, the sticks, all that can go in there. Um, and then on standard, the measurements for precise growth like we talked about. And then with joy, recognizing that we were actually designed by God to farm and that we need to rejoice in that farming and not see it as a burden or a curse. There's a little bit about seedling care. I'm not going to go into the details of that, but... We, in Africa, we talk about seedlings like they're babies, and they have to be on the breast when they're babies. And so you're talking about the seedling, like, you know, the women in Africa, they're always <laughs> nursing the babies. So, um, and then as they grow up, you're kind of like weaning them a little bit more and a little bit more. But having to water seedlings is so important. We actually, what we did, um, we were learning lessons. The firm has been around for about two and a half years, and the first time we started to do vegetable gardens, we gave out the seeds. And we decided that in terms of ownership of the vegetable gardens, we really want them to know that it's theirs and know that the maintenance of it is theirs. And so this time we actually bought a lot of seed, vegetable seeds in bulk there locally. And then we repackage them just in a piece of paper stapled. <laughs> and then we sell them. So we'll sell like a whole variety of five seeds like red cabbage, onions, um, skumawiki, which is like their collards, basically, tomatoes, and I think peppers, and we'll sell them for like 12 cents for all of those seeds. So it's just a small, they can, and I was actually shocked because I, I, you know, you look at these people, and I mean, they're so poor, like mud huts, a lot of the times kids not having shoes, et cetera, et cetera, and, um, but we've been amazed, actually, and, and part of the contract that we have people sign when they buy the seeds, like, we actually sold about 600 pounds of uh, really nice variety of non-GMO uh, soy seeds also. And um, we told all the church leaders to come and that if they got these subsidized seeds, then they needed to give at least half of them away. 
So that's the other thing we're excited about is it's disseminating to others. And it was amazing because we, we let the local district pastor know and the very next day was the meeting and he uses WhatsApp, which is the same thing I'm using to communicate with my team leaders all the time. And everybody came with money and we sold out the next day. So it was pretty cool. For like five kilos of um, soy, we sold it for about 75 cents. And they, they are thrilled because the soy on the local market, uh, I mean, we're buying Ugandan soy, but the soy on the local market is just very poor in terms of its productivity. So anyway, we cannot educate everybody on gardening uh, because we're focused on doing that in Africa. But here, I did want to let you guys know about something called Born to Grow. It was started by Paul Dysinger. The Dysinger name is pretty well known in Adventist agriculture. And it's an online gardening university. And so we actually are linking to it now on our website and helping people know that there's classes and there's kind of a whole club that people can be part of that is, um, it, it's, it's a really great community actually. They have like a members only Facebook page and you can sign up for classes and there's a lot of free materials. There's also a paid subscription plan with it. And so we're pretty excited about that and their family has been blessing Farm Stew with, with support as well. So it's been kind of a neat thing. And, uh, but I'm recommending it because I actually joined myself about six months ago just to have ideas and I, I feel good about the content they're sharing. So we're going to jump over a little bit to attitude and how we describe attitude is a choice to live God's way, to be disciplined and to have a positive outlook. Um, attitude is something that God has been working on my heart with. She told her story. I was raised Adventist. And so I've always been aware of the health message, and I feel very blessed to have known that. My mother was a home ec major. My dad was actually, he had an ag miner. So we did gardening. We cooked healthfully. Um, so I've known all of those things. But in the recent past, I found out that I have a chronic lung condition. And we all have to come to accept how God deals with each of us. And I don't know how many of you listened to the, to, uh, Mark Howard this morning and his conversion. Conversion is a daily experience, folks. It really, truly is. We have to die daily. So attitudes are really important, and this is something that God has been working with me. So I just wanted to share a few things with you that I have learned, and one of them is that we need to preach the truth to ourselves. Where do we find the truth? In the Bible. I just want to share with you, I, I became familiar with this author, Grace, Grace, Ruth Chow Simons. Her main book is called Grace Laced. She is not an Adventist, but she is a Christian, and she really understands the word. She knows that we need to know the word. And her most recent book that I picked up is called Garden of Truth. And she says in the beginning that, this is, I'm going to read to you carefully, you may not have a green thumb, or consider yourself a natural gardener, but spiritually you are sowing and growing each day through the thoughts that inform your mind and direct your heart. More than simple platitudes or self-help cliches, the words of the Bible transform because they both reveal and restore, cut and console. To trust in the truths of Scripture is to sow wisely. We can choose to listen either to ourselves in the day-to-day -day or to the faithful Word of God. Preaching truth to ourselves reminds our souls through God's word who the master gardener is and what he is cultivating in the soil of our lives through the hope of the gospel. 
So we go and we read God's word and his promises, which are truth, because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, doesn't he? So when we take in his word, we are preaching the truth to ourselves and we can change our attitudes. The next slide. Isn't that wonderful? Attitude yes, of we're gratitude. Cover that too. Yes. <laughs> so one of the things I think a lot of us who go on a mission trip, people always remark, they had so little, but they were so happy. I don't know how many times I've heard that. And it's so true. Like these young children were so excited because they were tasting the soy foods and the foods that we had made in our cooking class, and they were so excited. And, you know, I just think about how that's one of the biggest blessings I think you can bring back from going on a mission trip. But you don't necessarily even have to go to just have that attitude of gratitude, like you say, and know that, um, what, that we're so blessed. I think about Paul, and, you know, he, when we talk about depression and that type of things, one of the things that actually Neil Nedley and others that work in that area talk about is, you know, cognitive therapy is one of the tools in the toolkit of any good counselor. And I feel like Paul was really the original author of cognitive therapy. And in Philippians 4, I find his best example to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, to be anxious for nothing. And with thanksgiving, always let our requests be made known to God and this promise of peace. And really, in our culture, in this day and age, there's so few people that actually truly, truly have peace. And um, before I started Farm Stew, actually, I became certified as a creation health instructor. I don't know if you're familiar with that resource, Florida Hospital. I highly recommend it. And, and um, they have a number of different letters in their eight-letter health acronym that really talk about mental health, like outlook and interpersonal relationships and just different things that I think a lot of us as Americans are struggling with. Um, so I just offer that also as a resource to you if you want to bring something to your church. One thing I like to keep in mind is where was Paul when he was writing the letter to the Philippians? Yeah. So here's just an artist's depiction as he's telling us to think about what is pure and lovely and noble and true and just and good. He is probably this guy here, you know. What could he have been focused on at that time, you know? Yeah, he had every, every reason. And sometimes I like to remind myself when I'm feeling like I might have a word to murmur. <laughs> you know, Ellen White has the quote about Jesus never murmured. And when I'm thinking a thought that I might put to my tongue about my condition, I try to remember that Paul was in this type of condition. And in Uganda, we do have the blessing of being able to go into prisons. These are uh, prison women that are actually preparing jackfruit, which is a local food we talked about yesterday, um, learning to make soy foods. And this is one of the babies I mentioned. Um, there's a lot of the women that are in prison and if they come in pregnant, the babies are going to be living in prison with them. And we're so pleased. Um, just last week, actually, this picture is from last week, we were able to reach out and train the high-up people in both the army and the prisons. And we think it's going to open a lot of doors to more prisons that we can go train in. So we need more uh, staff and then also more of the train-the-trainers people equipped so that they can go heed this call to the prisons. But Paul... And this is the message for us, is that he learned to be content. He knew 
what it was to be abased and to abound. He knew what it was to be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. And he knew that he could do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So to me, that's the attitude wrapped up in a way that um, can really be a blessing to us as we carry it in. For me, I think, and over the last three years, part of my recovery of my own wellness and my own happiness has been meeting people like Mr. Mutima. This is a, a church elder in Zimbabwe, and we visited his home where he had hosted a class for about 40 neighbors, and he had actually been trained in um, 2016 and had transformed his his little parcel of land into what I would call almost like a Garden of Eden. And yet he still had a lot of challenges, you'll hear. I just, I to me, it's like the, the stories of our church members and I'm sure a lot of other people, um, you know, they inspire me and they make me realize, you know, I, I can... I can keep doing this. I can do hard things. Sometimes I tell myself that, like when I get overwhelmed by a project, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, you know, if he can build this, these bricks are made by hand, you know. Like, I mean, probably the cement is bought, but the dirt, they're making the bricks. And the churches over there, that's how most of them are made. We hear about the Maranatha and the one-day churches. I've been in so many churches where there's just it's just a wall of bricks, and it's been three years to get to that point. And, you know, someday they're going to get a roof on. And yet they're just these beautiful, vibrant fellowships of, of people. So so the power of gratitude, you mentioned that. Um, there's a research project on gratitude and thanksgiving that found that people that write down regularly, and that's something actually one of our board members taught me, take this bouquet to God and offer a bouquet of the things that he had given you that day. Like offer it back to God in the evening um, those people have higher levels of optimism, alertness, and energy, more likely to help others. It actually um, shows that that they are more likely to exercise, which I think is interesting, and have better quality sleep and to feel loved and also to feel more connected to others. Just by that thought of saying, you know, at the end of the day, instead of sitting there worrying about the next day, which the Bible tells us explicitly not to do, um, let's take that same time, that same energy, and be grateful for the things that happened. So the helper's high. Um, did you see, I think Mr. Mutima had a real helper's high going that day. He was training all these people, and it was people from all walks of life in his neighborhood that he was exposing to really our health message, and he was so excited about it. Um, the helper's high, I thought this one was kind of fun. Two large studies found that older adults who volunteered reaped the benefits from their health and well-being, and, and they were living longer. And then I love this one, a 44% reduction in early death among those that volunteered, and it was a greater effect than exercising four times a week. <laughs> so I'm not against exercise, even though our E doesn't stand for exercise, um, but that's pretty cool that by helping other people, you can get those benefits. But who was the first one who told us about the helper's high, right? Jesus told us that 2,000 years ago. He says, I, um, in Acts, Luke records, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than receive. So there's so much that we, sharing about farm stew for me, it, it at the start 
I was actually financing it myself with my health department job for the first year. I didn't even really tell that many people what I was doing. It was just what God told me to do was to hire these people and mobilize them to go work. And then eventually we decided to start a 501c3, start a board, and I actually stopped my job at the local health department so I could focus more on this and also being a mom and a wife myself. Um, and, you know, so when I had to start going out and asking people for resources to help finance this work, at the start it was very uncomfortable. I'm like, I'm a nutritionist, I'm a public health person, I'm not a fundraiser. But, like, when I started looking in the research of just this whole giving and how important it is for us to have you know, an outflow of our resources that share with others and how I can really help people feel really great about what they're doing by being an excellent steward of their resources, then it makes it a partnership and it makes it something that's a blessing to the local people as well. I just want to say this, and Mrs. White says that the law of the universe is the law of giving and that humans are the only ones who want to hold things to themselves. So we just want to wrap up the part on attitudes by saying that our attitudes are determined by where we focus our thoughts. Are they on Jesus? Are they on positive things? Are they on the negative dark things? Because emotions can come and go, but attitudes come and they grow. Just ponder that. Rest, we define it as nightly, weekly, for our bodies and also allowing the soil to rest. So there's a rhythm of rest. Partly the what is in nature is the ground is never uncovered. You never see bare dirt just out there in nature. So we always talk with our farming practices that we always want the, the earth to be covered, even the rose. And there's a rhythm to rest that I want Sylvia to speak about. She's learning great things and teaching them. So train the trainer method all along. <laughs> We learn from each other. So it's, you know, iron sharpens iron. But this is something that God has been teaching me, and it's in our study of the Sabbath. But he has given us this, this idea of rhythm of rest was not new with me. It comes from Robert Morgan, who you just saw his thing on attitudes. But um, in the whole of creation, he has given us a rhythm for rest. In Genesis, the first account, evening and the morning were the first day evening and the morning were the second day, and so forth. And then we come to the Sabbath, where on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Okay, how much work did God do in creating the world? He spoke and it was, right? He spoke and it was, but he'd already set a pattern in place. And we humans have turned it around. We always say work first and then rest, right? But if you look at what the Bible says, it says we're supposed to rest first and then we work. That's how it was set up, night first and then day. Think about it. We don't do that, but, but when we come to keep the Sabbath, we stop Friday at sundown. and we stick. So we do it with the Sabbath but we don't do it every other day. And I wonder if it wouldn't change our attitudes if we thought about resting first and then working. We don't earn our rest. We rest so that we can work. Does that make any sense? This is just a totally, this was something that's come to me and I really want to share it with you because I think it's powerful for us. And the Sabbath we know is a symbol of God's creative power and his redemption, right? 
in the, in the commandment in Exodus, he tells us to remember him because he is the creator of heaven and earth. That's in Exodus. But in Deuteronomy, when he reiterates the commandment again, he says, remember, because I took you out of Egypt. All right, so I'm going to take it step further. We talked about his finished work. He rested, and he asks us, the first day that man had was actually resting with God on that Sabbath day, right? That's what man got to do on his first day. He got to rest with God in his finished, God's finished work. I want to carry that further. When Jesus came to the cross, he came for a purpose, right? And he rested on the Sabbath. But when he, just before he died, what did he say? It is finished. And actually before that, in his prayer in John, he says to the Father, I have finished the, the work that you gave me to do. I have finished. I have finished the work. So what was his work at that point? Redemption. I'd like to suggest it was actually doing his Father's will. <laughs> Go further into Hebrews where Paul says, there is therefore a day of rest still for the people of God. He talks about that and he refers back to the Sabbath. What is, what is he talking about? He's talking about that finished rest with God. So what I'd like to suggest is that God wants us to rest in his finished work. And then we work. It's not our works that save us. Isn't that the picture? It's not our works. So it's not about our works. It's about his work. And the whole Sabbath picture is about resting in his finished work. And when we get to the very end of the Bible in Revelation and we have the three angels' messages and we have that whole picture about worship and the center of that we know is the Sabbath, which celebrates the Creator and also the Redeemer. And in the last part of the th third angel's message when it talks about Babylon has fallen, has fallen, and those who drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication will be tormented and they will have no rest day or night isn't that interesting so the only way we get rest is through jesus and his finished work and if we refuse to have that we will have no rest so that's a beautiful picture right of rest and so he has that whole picture for us that there is a, a place for rest and a place for work but we rest first in him, and then we do the works. Mm -hmm. So Joy's going to tell us a little bit more about how that works with soil. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. And with work, you know, with the attitude, we do talk a lot about the work and the six days that we labor and work. And if you've heard some stories about African men, <laughs> often there's a lot of games going on or idle things. A lot of that is because they don't, they, they, they've come to see farming, which is really the only job opportunity a lot of them have, as a cursed thing. It's like a punishment. It's like below their level. And so we try to really restore the dignity to farming and restore the dignity to work and remind them that work was something that was given in the garden when everything was very good. It's not part of a curse. It's part of that which is very good. And, and it's been really, really fun. I shared the story yesterday of Fatima who is now vegetable gardening with her husband and adding to his wages as a cobbler, a shoe cobbler, and how now they you know, can send their kids to school and they have an ongoing viable business as a result of just changing her attitude about work, the work of gardening. 
So um, just with sleep, I know a lot of our Adventist health messages touch on it, but sleep's relationship to immunity, this is from Creation Health, and I just think it's so powerful because especially working in places where there's immunocompromised, like HIV, AIDS, and whatnot, if you miss those early morning hours of sleep, uh, this is, takes a while to explain, but basically, um, if you go to bed early and have to wake up early, say you have to have a short night, you're going to lose a lot less of your immune system if you go to bed early and wake up early than if you go to bed late and wake up late. Basically, those hours before midnight are precious, precious hours in all the different hormones, and basically your body is like resetting every mechanism. And those hours before midnight in bed are way more precious. The, also, the idea of rest, we talk about compost as a form of rest. It's allowing things to just naturally decompose. Um, this is just a breakdown of what uh, is recommended in terms of a compost pile being 10% manure, 45% of materials that were cut when they were green. It's all about when they were cut, not the state when you lay them on them. But if they were cut when they were green, and then 40% cut when they were brown, and then 5% woody. The woody materials help to make sure you can get oxygen into the compost pile. And I shared this picture of the compost. I, I have a million pictures of compost, so I need to get a new one in this one. But um, there, there's a lot of excitement when you learn, when the people learn about compost. And really, it can be a great thing in our country, too. Um, my daughter actually loves, like, when we shovel out the compost, because it's amazing. You put stuff in there, and it's just random, and then all of a sudden, it's just this beautiful dirt. You do some composting yourself? Okay. And then also, this is something we don't really talk about, but the whole idea that the land is supposed to rest. Um, the Sabbath year, every seventh year, was designed, and we know that when the people were actually... Um, taken out of the promised land and went into exile, it, the Bible says that the land enjoyed its rest. And there was 490 years of defiance. So that meant that if there was supposed to be rest every seven years, there was 70 Sabbath years that had been missed. And so that was the mathematical calculation God came up with of why they had to be out of the land 70 years was because they had failed to follow the Sabbath rest plan for the land. And I know my grandfather was a farmer in Indiana, and he, um, he always planted, and it was before I knew anything about Sabbaths, really, but he always planted corn, beans, and wheat, and then corn, beans, and wheat, and then that seventh year, he would let the animals go out on that pasture. Now, he didn't stop all production for a year, which is what the Bible recommends, but he um, rotated his plots of land in that regard. And I just wonder, you know, that was before all the, a lot of the agrochemicals, I'm sure he used something, but, you know, I think it really helped with the health of the soil. And there's a fair bit of new research out. Um, I was at University of Illinois at a big uh, agricultural conference last year, and there was a couple of seminars talking about fallow and letting the land lie fallow and, and different crops that you could actually plant on that would just be, you know, cover crops to allow the soil to rest. So this is terrible. I didn't have time to retype it, and it, when I sized it, it didn't work. But the plan for man for seven days a week is work, 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 and then rest, or as Sylvia was saying, rest, and then work, work, work. The land. Yeah, but in six days, shall thou labor and do all thy work. Right. 
the land was in the years, and then the earth, there's a generally, I think, an idea that we accept that there's going to be 6,000 years of sin and then the 1,000-year millennium of rest. So it's just kind of interesting. I think God is a mathematician as well as a nutritionist and a gardener. So um, our meals, our tagline is we really focus on plant-based, whole foods diet using mostly what a family can grow themselves. Now, in a tropical region where you can have three planting seasons a year, that's a little bit easier than if we had just our own vegetable garden here. But we talk a lot about the dark, naturally occurring colors, and then again, our, our pulses or legumes that we're really focused on. Um, just looking at what are some of the superfoods of the blue zones, the Nicoya Peninsula is the only... Uh, Blue zone that's actually kind of in what you could consider the developing world. And just, I think it's interesting, uh, maize, mixed tamal, it looks like my avocado is covering my L, um, but maize, mixed tamal is an uh, ancient processing of maize that basically all the Central Americans eat maize that has been soaked in an alkaline solution of um, lime. It's a lime, the stone, it's calcium carbonate. It's something I'm pretty excited about because in Africa, they're eating, like I said yesterday, 30 to 50% of their calories are coming from maize, but they don't use this soaking method. And that's something I'm actually working with a professor in Uganda to try to start introducing the soaking method to the maize that's sold in Africa so that they could have the nutritional benefits from that. I could give an hour-long lecture about maize nixtamol, but you can actually YouTube it, or if you want info, I, I can share that with you. Um, there's a lot of nutritional benefits and whatnot. Um, the other plant-based foods you can see, just kind of interesting, the beans, the beans, and the beans again. It's a plant slant. Beans, including fava, black beans, soy, and lentils are the cornerstone of most of the centurion diets. And I focus on that a little bit because Ellen White, um, I don't know if she didn't know about soaking the beans overnight, which is a very important thing to do. You're activating certain enzymes. If you've soaked beans overnight, you'll see that um, there's bubbles that come up in the water. So you can choose if those bubbles want to come up in the water or in your gut. <laughs> so I'd rather them come up in the water, and it also makes the nutrients a lot more bioavailable. So you take that water, pour it off, and then cook it with fresh water. That's a really important thing. And it makes me wonder, she says that beans didn't really sit well with her. And so often when she lists out the dietary guidelines for Adventists, she talks about fresh fruits, nuts, and grains, but she doesn't mention legumes. It's the one conversation I wish I could have with her on, on nutrition, but otherwise she nailed it. Um, this is from the University of Michigan, and this is a pyramid that I altered a little bit. It's their Healing Food Guides Pyramid, and this is one of the visual aids that we use in training in Africa. So we start with the foundation of water, and... There is just such an important need for water. We, of course, have our W stands for water, and we get more stories of people that had headaches or kidney problems or even their eyes are just like bloodshot, and when they start drinking water, they're just really having a major change. I like this because we have the fruits and vegetables, the whole grains, the legumes, and then the healthy fats and the seasonings. Um, and, and so those things are daily, and then... In our health message with Farm Stew, we don't tell everybody they need to be vegan. Most of them already are vegetarians or vegans if they're really, really poor, because even if they're raising animals, that's their banking system. They're selling them. And so um, 
but we, I did block out the unclean foods. And, uh, but there's also a lot of problems in, in both in our culture and in, in their culture. In Uganda, for example, there was a big expose that they're actually dipping meat in formaldehyde before they sell it so that it won't spoil in the market, but it's going to spoil you instead. Um, the Food and Agriculture Administration has a, a guide that we use. It's a dietary diversity guide, and I love it because it has 10 food groups as opposed to the sometimes four or five that we work with. And I point this out just because it's if you have five or more, you have a diverse diet. Generally, the people we're working with have like two or three. And so they're basically eating starchy staple foods and maybe, you know, a little bit of green vegetables or some type of fruit or something. A lot of them are, have a very, very limited diet. So if you can get up to five or more, you can have a pretty good assurance you're going to get what you need. And I love this here because there's a, a category for green leafy vegetables and a category for vitamin A rich vegetables, which would be like the orange vegetables, like carrots or butternut squash or mangoes, those types of things. Those foods are so important. Um, we do base everything on the Bible, and I'd encourage you as you're going out and doing your health ministry, there's so many verses that people don't realize teach us what to eat. Like this one in Genesis, the Lord planted a garden, he put humans there. So he told us to <laughs> tend the garden. And out of the ground, the Lord made all kinds of trees, things that were pleasing to the eye. So we talk about What's pleasing to the eye? A rainbow. Um, and if you eat across the color spectrum, basically you're going to get the micronutrients you need if you're eating the dark, naturally occurring colors, just like you mentioned before. And um, the rainbow, why it works is that each color actually represents the presence of a different type of micronutrient. For example, the orange being vitamin A or beta carotene that turns into vitamin A. So important for eyesight, skin, immunity, and um, you can find it in anything bright orange. So you don't have to have a PhD or a nutrition degree to just say, you know, eat across the color spectrum. And that's what we try to make everything very, very, very simple. Um, the dark leafy greens, I don't know if you know, but when uh, people get pregnant, they're encouraged to take folic acid. That's because it's a necessary nutrient to grow a healthy baby. Well, guess where the folate acid comes from? Foliage, right? Foliage. So they are just assuming people aren't eating their dark leafy greens. So instead they have to take a pill. So Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this time. I thank you for the, the message that we are hearing throughout the whole week. And I also thank you for giving us the gift of farm stew to share with others. And I pray, Lord, that you can um, just touch the hearts of each person in this room and that we can prayerfully um, pray about how to engage both in our communities, but also being a blessing to the global church as well. I thank you for this time, and I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.